Welcome to Full Life FM. I'm your host, Emily Tim. I'm a registered dietitian, content creator, and feminist on a mission to help women live their fullest lives. I've worked with thousands of women with PCOS and other endocrine conditions to optimize metabolic, reproductive, and mental health. I'm passionate about approachable, evidence-based nutrition, intentional living, and the Mediterranean diet and lifestyle. Each week, we'll bring you new episodes and guest interviews to inspire, empower, and educate on what it really means to be healthy. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review. And if you're ready to do health together, I'd love to have you in my membership community, the Full Life Society. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Full Life FM. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Richa Mittal. She's a, uh, an MD who is certified in lifestyle medicine, and she's working on a certification in culinary medicine. And she is just an incredible um, physician who is melding lifestyle medicine with, with the medical side of things. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with her today. And to get started, um, Richa, do you want to just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and your practice and, and what you're about? Yes, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, as uh, Emily mentioned, I'm Richa Mithel. I'm an internal medicine, obesity medicine, and lifestyle medicine physician in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And my journey began as an internal medicine doctor working in the hospital uh, setting, seeing patients coming in with all the really complicated things that I realized quickly were the end result of a lot of chronic conditions. And when I uh, kind of day in and day out was working with those patients, I started to think about what impact I could have on that end of things. I left the hospital world and went into the outpatient setting to really uh, start to work on that. And it was, it was a long journey for me uh, because of uh, professional and personal reasons. But what led me here today was a kind of a lot of combination of those things. I now uh, focus on the practice of medicine within a setting that allows me to uh, provide the type of setting that I think helps people with not only the medical aspect of things, but as you mentioned, melding the medical aspect with the lifestyle aspect. And I started my practice in the Frisco area four years ago, and I do a membership-based direct care type of practice where people belong to me and I'm able to spend longer time with them in visits and I do a medical evaluation and medical management, as well as um, obesity medicine and helping them with uh, targeting needed weight loss. I think that that's important to talk about later as far as yeah. what drives those decisions um, and uh, the lifestyle medicine side to help improve their chronic con medical conditions and their cardiometabolic health. And for those of you who don't know, those would be conditions like type 2 diabetes, PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, a lot of the uh, kind of chronic gut-related conditions that are related to lifestyle, like irritable bowel syndrome. And so really partnering up with people to put all of that together. And I do incorporate culinary medicine as well. And I'm so excited to talk about this. This is my passion. And when I get to educate and practice in this way, I think it really kind of um, comes full circle for me for why I went into medicine. Amazing. Wow. Um, and so you started four years, four years ago. Did that, um, did, how did things change for you when the pandemic happened? Were you able to do virtual or what did that look like? Yeah, you know, actually, it was a seamless transition for me because I already had the capability of seeing people virtually, yeah. although I don't think as many people took advantage of that, um, specifically because I think that there's some accountability piece when people come in to see me in the office every month. But yeah, we were able to just go to telemedicine. I already had a platform set up for that. And it was really actually uh, great in some ways because I think it opened up that avenue for me to be uh, able to reach more people. I think more people embraced 
being able to connect with their healthcare providers virtually. Yeah, very cool. And I didn't ask you this, but do you work with um, with women or bo- both and women and men? Does it matter? Um, I work with both. I would okay. say the majority of my patients tend to be women, but I have quite a few men in my practice too. Uh, because, you know, these cardiometabolic concerns affect everybody. Uh, I think specifically, a lot of times women, especially if they're dealing with hormonal things, you know, related to either uh, post-pregnancy, perimenopause, polycystic ovarian syndrome, oftentimes they're going to seek me out more Mm -hmm. often. I think men also, uh, you know, tend to kind of get diagnosed with stuff and maybe, uh, I think struggle a little bit with maybe reaching out for help sooner, but I, oh, I, yeah. I see a mix. <laughs> cool. I, yeah, I was just curious. And then you mentioned that you see, um, your patients every month. Is that, is that for everybody? So, uh, I have kind of three different types of patients. One uh-huh. is, uh, the, uh, people who are looking for that medical weight management, the intensive lifestyle change related to their cardiometabolic things or conditions. And so typically what I do is I see them during the first month more intensively. I'll see them twice during that month. I reach out to everyone weekly uh, through a secure communication app uh, to check in with how their lifestyle changes are going. I know that none of this is easy. And then during the monthly phase, yeah, I see everyone monthly, either in person or virtually. And then eventually as they transition into maybe not needing as much intensive um, attention, so either six to 12 months typically during the monthly phase, and then people will go into maybe every other month for a little bit, and then maintenance, which is every three to six months. I do also offer in-depth what I call 360 wellness visits, which is where people who are maybe just wanting that opportunity to be able to sit down with somebody and just do a deep dive into their Mm -hmm. uh, risk factors, into their assessment as to where their health is right now. So you could think of it as a deep dive annual exam, but where I spend time counseling them on all the pillars of their lifestyle, stress, sleep, their nutritional habits, their, um, you know, movement, and uh, even mindset, some discussion around that too. I love that idea. That's incredible. And I love that you do make that because, you know, in the, in the traditional model, the healthcare model, I don't feel like monthly visits are really a thing. And, you know, when somebody's working on massive change, it's like we, we, we want to plug in consistently. I think that's really nice. Um, yeah. And when you're doing the, the 360 visit, that sounds interesting. Like how, um, when you are talking about like nutrition and kind of with your culinary medicine background and things like that, um, how precise do you, do you get with it? Have you, are you familiar with the term precision nutrition? I am, but I don't really, um, quite practice that. I know that yeah. that sometimes is based on a lot of different lab testing, I believe. Yeah. I'm, I just started kind of looking into it, um, or learning more about it. I should say it just kind of like fell, fell on me, like maybe a, a couple months ago. And it, I think it's just kind of similar to what you're talking about, but we don't have this, the specific kind of testing that we might have in the future to get specific with people's kind of genes and how we want to tell them to eat. Um, so what are those, what are the conversations look like around like the nutrition aspect? I'm glad that you brought that concept up because I think there's so much stuff out there, you know, on Instagram, <laughs> getting constantly yeah. served different ads for, uh, DNA testing to know what type of diet to eat or, you know, gut microbiome testing or, you know, yes. these really expensive tests that I think are money makers for people. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that sometimes the message about what does a healthy lifestyle look like gets really lost in the details where by the time I see someone, sometimes they're so paralyzed with the analysis paralysis that they're like scared to eat and all the joy of eating has been taken away. And I kind of have to have them take a step back and go, okay, first of all, let's honor how you like to eat 
And what is your cultural and ethnic background of the things that maybe you have decided, or maybe someone's told you, you can't eat such and such anymore, mm -hmm. which that robbing of your joy of your food is really not right. right. It's not fair. It's not sustainable. And you know this in your work too. People are constantly in this cycle of restriction, indulgence, restriction over indulgence yeah. because they're in that yo-yo because they're, there's maybe some tests that told them I can't eat any carbs or mm -hmm. I can't eat gluten, even though maybe they actually can. And so where I come from is first of all, trying to assess what are the things, what are the barriers they find to healthful eating um, being realistic about, you know, I kind of ask about well, what are your non-negotiables? Like what is something right. that you really find a lot of joy in, or maybe it's something that you really enjoy or it's cultural, you know, I'll give them my example of like, I'm never going to completely say, I'm never going to have chips and salsa again. That's something I really, right. enjoy. but we maybe pizza can... for me. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is another one, but yeah. how can this be part of your lifestyle? but still honoring what you want to do most of the time for your health and starting there. And then, you know, I use the Harvard healthy plate model. I think that's a very nice balanced type of visual Yeah. And focus on addition, not complete restriction. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I know that people want to journal and I encourage journaling to be aware but most of the time where people journal is actually a focus on, oh, I can only eat this many calories and I have to hit this many macros. And I think that sometimes if they really want to have that goal-oriented thing, I will say, okay, let's try that for a little bit. But I really don't want us to be in this phase for very long mm -hmm. because I actually use an intuitive eating app in my practice called Eight, where people take photos and answer questions about why they eat. And again, the, the focus on how to build that plate, how can we add more plant-based foods into your lifestyle? Why do we wanna do that? Well, we get to include more foods. It's more nutritionally dense. You can create a calorie deficit without a focus on extreme restriction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of discussion around drivers of eating too, behaviors associations. Okay. When you're in the evening, you know, this is very common for a lot of busy moms, right? Yeah. That's their me time. Everyone's gone to bed. Um, it's quiet. Now I'm going to put on the television and it's my comfort time, my time to take care of myself. And maybe that includes eating a lot of really calorie dense, indulgent foods. And really the conversation there then needs to be, what can your love language be to yourself? Outside. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's just, I'm, I'm just listening to like every word you're saying, because um, this is the beautiful thing about the internet is like, it seems like, you know, from listening to this podcast, it seems like there are, um, you know, so many empathetic, incredible, like whole person oriented physicians. And I hope there, I hope there, I hope there are, but it's just really amazing that we like get to connect and be so on the same like wavelength. I love what you said about, you know, the relationship with yourself, how you're going to take care of yourself. I've been bringing that up so, so often. I'm kind of focusing now on like, how do we tap into like intrinsic motivation, mm -hmm. not just like what you mentioned, hitting these targets or hitting these goals, but like, what's going to keep you really going forever. Yeah, exactly. That is so beautiful. I love it. And um, I also think it's a great point that you bring up. You know, we have these apps, these the MyFitnessPal and the Lose It and these different tools. I think people are always surprised when they come to work with me that that isn't something that we really use maybe once in a blue moon, but you can achieve so much and feel so good without having to get that detailed is there, are, are there any strategies or like certain kind of conversations you have to like really let people in on this fact? Um, I find sometimes there's not, res there's a, sometimes there can be a little bit of fear around, well, can, I, can it really be that easy? Yeah. And I think because it's been a tool that's worked, 
Mm-hmm. But they also know it's a tool that maybe sometimes mentally takes some places they don't want to go. Yeah. So what I try to say is use it. So I actually do incorporate it in the beginning for some, for, I would say for a lot of people. And what mm-hmm. I tell them is about our focus is going to be for you to get curious because yeah. I think that there's a lot of useful information there, but it's not really in just hitting that target. So I say to them, you look at the daily diary nutrition intake, you know, that other tab that you can go to mm-hmm. and I give them fiber goals and I give them maybe um, like a percentage of time that they want to be hitting some protein because a lot of times maybe they've not been including any protein in their meals. And that can be a driver of just like constantly not being satiated between protein and fiber yeah, and your healthy fats. I mean, that's the stuff that's going to leave you full. So I have them focus on their fiber, have them focus on their protein. Sometimes I might ask them to hone in on their added sugar. And, And I just say, hey, like use this as a tool to get curious and learn about the food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually move away from it, you're empowered with that knowledge and you don't have to necessarily use it long-term. And I think some people, I tell them, do not use it (laughs) and Mm -hmm. let's be more intuitive and look at the quality of your plate. And that's where the photo comes in to say, hey, does half my plate have fruits and vegetables? Do I have something with whole grains and fiber on my plate? Yeah. Some lean protein. Do I have some healthy fat? So, you know, kind of different strategies based on how it impacts a person. Yeah, that's so good. And honestly, I feel like my definition of precision nutrition, and I think where we are right now, like falls into what you're doing. I think it's like tailoring the strategies to the human and then, you know, using, using the information to kind of guide what might be your first kind of focus point. Mm-hmm. But not not just going to this place of you know generic calorie and macro targets and and that's it just feels bad. Personalized, you know. Yes, I think personalized. Because I know that with precision, a lot of times I've had patients come and tell me like, "Oh, I did this test and they tested my DNA and they said I needed to eat this." And I go, "Oh my gosh! First of all, how many thousands of dollars did those tests cost you?" And secondly, were you able to sustainably stay on that type of lifestyle, eliminating um, right. a lot of healthful foods and a lot of things that bring you joy? <laughs> so um, I love that that's the definition we're going to call it. It's precision is personalized and yeah. it's, it's tailored to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, do when you're talking with people, what, what are your thoughts on, on kind of like two things? One, supplements. This is such a hot topic and it's honestly, it's like the most, it kind of pains me because it's the most common question that I get as a dietitian is what supplements should I take? And then how do, how do you, how do appetite regulating medications fit into your work also? Both are great uh, questions. So number one on supplements, I'm a big proponent of get your nutrition from your food. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that we're a go, 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 very busy, modern society. Everything is instant gratification. Check a box and be done with it. Um, You can't get all your nutrition out of different supplements from different bottles and supplements can be dangerous too. And they are medication. Like if we're going to, in one breath, say this, this supplement can help heal me or fix me or give me something then on the other hand, you have to accept that supplements can have risks associated with them too. And yeah. there's an impression like, oh, it's natural, so it's safe. Um, even green tea extracts and different things like that have been related to liver failure. And uh, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote weight loss supplements and magical potions and teas and detoxes. Uh, these are not FDA approved, they are not tested for their safety or efficacy. And you are typically being promoted by someone making something off of it. And um, they're not necessarily going to work. And, uh, you know, I think like you have to kind of be very careful about what you put into your body. So get your nutrition from food. If you're eating a well-balanced diet, that's including all the different macronutrients and 
uh, lots and lots of fruits and vegetables, there's no reason why you shouldn't be getting most of your nutrients. Um, I will say that for people who are whole food plant-based or you know, completely vegan, there are some supplements that I will typically recommend like mm -hmm. B12, omega-3, um, you know, type of supplements. But, you know, outside of that, I think there can be some nutritional testing for particular um, medications that people are on like metformin. If people mm -hmm. are on medications like proton pump inhibitors, they can be at risk for certain nutritional deficiencies like B12. So there should be some testing and then there can be adequate, you know, supplementation based on that. Uh, you know, I will say that there are some supplements out there that have some data around them, like in the polycystic ovarian syndrome world, um, myo-inositol and d inositol There are some small studies comparing them to uh, the efficacy around metformin. And um, could that be helpful? Uh, maybe. And I think there should be a discussion about it with your physician then to mm -hmm. understand the risks and benefits. Awesome. Yeah. And before we move on to the um, medications, I, um, I wanted to ask you, like in your practice, have you, have you seen, you know, people in your practice that have been negatively impacted by supplements like firsthand or. I mean, not while they're working with me. Cause yeah. <laughs> I'm on them. I'm like, stop. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard of, you know, patients having adverse effects, you know, like there are people that in the past have taken ephedra, say, yeah, hydroxy cut, um, you know, different things like that, having in anxiety, insomnia, palpitations, different things like that. Um, fortunately, I have not had people who've had severe injury. I have had people that have been on yo-yo cycles, a lot mm -hmm. of weight loss and regain. Um, I've had patients that have done HCG and been on 500, yeah. lots of those, um, and 500 calorie diets who lost 70 pounds, regained 70 pounds, um, which is not only detrimental to their health, but to their mental health. And is just not really the cycle that we want to mm -hmm. be. On. Yeah. And, um, if you're comfortable, people always ask me this too. Do you personally take any supplements? So I personally have purchased a lot of supplements. No, I'm yeah. just, not a lot, but a few. Um, so I actually uh, have been looking into and considering uh, taking a GABA supplement. So mm -hmm. that is a supplement that's been looked at for management of sleep and anxiety. Um, I, I can share personally that I've been going through some perimenopause changes yeah. and some sleep disruption and anxiety, <laughs> um, especially at 4am when I'm wide awake and yeah. uh, thinking about things. So uh, there is there are some small studies on it and it looks like it's relatively safe. So that is something that I've been contemplating uh, trying. Yeah. Uh, I have, I do take uh, B12 because I practice a plant-based diet. Okay. And um, I personally have had some issues with insulin resistance and I have the myo-inositol, d inositol sitting in my cabinet and <laughs> take it sporadically. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for sharing that because, you know, I like to ask that question because I think that's something that has been really um surprising and, and enlightening in terms of like just being in the online space that people do want to know about their health professionals in like a more personal way. And I think, you know, whatever we're comfortable sharing, it, it helps make that it just make, you know, we're human too. And I, and I think it's good for people to know, like you go through these things too. And, um, and yeah, I mean, there have been times where I use supplements for very specific reasons, mm -hmm. but I, I think like, whenever I ask this question, it's always, a, it's a good thing to just know that a lot of the time, most of the time, we're not taking any type of multivitamin, anything, anything like that. Yeah. I definitely don't take a multivitamin because I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And, um, and then what about, I also want to come back to the culinary medicine side of things, but what about, um, appetite regulating medications? What are your thoughts? How do those come up? Yeah, so they definitely have a role. And I think this is some, a place that the medical system and, well, I would say the medical system has failed because we're the 
leaders on this. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you know, this impression that, you know, when people seek out these natural supplements, it's because they kind of feel like, okay, well, I need something to help me, but there's not the acknowledgement of the medical aspect of the whole thing. Yeah. And there is a big medical aspect, but they're not mutually exclusive. We can have a plan for people that can include both sides of things. When it comes to obesity, when it comes to type two diabetes, when it comes to pre-diabetes, people struggling with insulin resistance, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, people with fatty liver disease, there are real impacts on long-term health for people with these conditions. And this is not everything, but a lot of it. Yeah. And we know that things like these medical conditions can actually improve with weight loss and specifically visceral body fat loss, which is the type of um, fat that we store in our midsection around our intra-abdominal organs that increases our risk for heart disease, stroke, diabetes, heart, uh, you know, uh, fatty liver. And when we can use an approach that helps people to sustainably lose weight with their lifestyle, and sometimes people cannot get there with lifestyle changes alone, and that doesn't mean that the lifestyle doesn't matter, but it means that some people require additional medical care. Mm-hmm. And I equate it to things like high blood pressure, say. The lifestyle matters, but if somebody was walking around with really high blood pressure and we just said, well, we're going to give you medication for like three months and or maybe not at all and just kind of see what happens. But hey, go ahead and make these lifestyle changes which we know can have an impact, but are easier said than done sometimes, right? People Mm -hmm. need time to adapt and make lifestyle changes. They're going to have a potentially a stroke, right? We would never do that. Right. So in that same way, we have to look at obesity as a chronic medical condition, and it is recognized as such, but it doesn't mean that all obesity is a chronic medical condition. We have to get a little bit more nuanced. So that's where you can't just use BMI as a measure. And I know that takes us into a whole other discussion. But when you're talking about weight and the need for excess body fat loss, we have to tie the two together to how is it impacting your health personally. Mm-hmm. And then discussion around FDA approved medications along with your lifestyle can take place. We know that these medications can help people, not just with weight loss, but sustainability. Right. Most people who lose weight regain weight for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. And when we pair the two together, you can really make an impact on the long-term outcome. And it doesn't mean that everyone who's on medication has to stay on it, but Mm -hmm. many of them, that's the difference, especially if you're trying to say reverse diabetes. Right. Oftentimes you need 15 to 20% of a body weight reduction, specifically body fat, right? We want to try to maintain muscle along with their lifestyle changes. These medications can help to make that happen. So they have a role and it's not a personal failure or um, your uh, lack of trying or the fact that you weren't dedicated enough. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of medical things like the set point in the brain, in the hypothalamus, it's an Mm -hmm. area that regulates body weight that tries to get us back to where we were before maybe we lost weight. There's also something called adiposopathy or sick fat disease. That means that for a lot of people, their body fat itself is not operating the way it should. It's part of our endocrine system. Mm-hmm. And it's sending and communicating with the hypothalamus to regulate body weight. And these things can make hunger <laughs> and lack of fullness really difficult for people who've maybe created a calorie deficit, lost weight. And those urges to eat and that um, signal that your brain and your body is giving you to regain weight can be very strong. And last but not least, there's other hormones like there's one called GLP-1 that's made by our small intestine that regulates hunger and fullness. 
And interestingly enough, people who say go through bariatric surgery, um, you know, we know that, okay, well, their stomach is smaller, they can't eat as much, but there's actually an increase in this hormone in people who've had surgery, leading to the idea that there's actually a relative sometimes deficit or not enough of some of these hormones around that lead to weight gain. And some of the medications we use actually target that hormone that leads to weight loss. And one of the things that a lot of my patients say who take any type of these medications or, you know, what they'll tell me is like, for the first time, I just feel like I'm not thinking about food all the time. And I think it's important to recognize that not everyone experiences hunger the same way. Mm -hmm. And these medications can help in that department. Yeah. That's an, that's an incredible explanation. Um, and I hope that if anybody's listening and feeling frustrated along their weight loss journey, that that gives them some kind of confidence or peace in using these things. Um, because yeah, there's so many emotions tied up in using these medications because of the way that we think about weight loss in, in our culture. Yeah. And what are you, what do you think or when, when is it appropriate to consider weight loss surgery or like how, how do those conversations happen in your practice? So, you know, right away when we know that <clears throat> people who would say have a BMI over 50 who are uh, over 45, who have type two diabetes, we know that actually bariatric surgery can put their metabolic disease into remission. But it's important to recognize that not everyone should just have bariatric surgery, right? There's people who have conditions like binge eating disorder or maybe anxiety and depression and, you know, things that require optimization before you would just do a surgery that is going to just take care of part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think for a lot of people, it's important to recognize that if you have surgery, there's a lot of things that you're gonna to have to do on your end after surgery, lifelong. And there is weight rate regain after surgery too. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to remember that it's not something that you do and then you're kind of just fixed, quote unquote. It, not that there's anything wrong with you, but sometimes that's what people say, those words. And um, important to have follow-up and, and, and a mindset of at some point, I have patients that have had bariatric surgery who are patients of mine where medical and lifestyle interventions will need to happen in the future too. So definitely there's people that can benefit. Um, if I see somebody who I think would benefit from that, I don't take them on. I, I tell them, hey, you know, you should probably look into uh, bariatric surgery and I'm happy to partner with you while you prepare for it. Um, but I do think that that's an option you should look into. For people who have, so technically for bariatric surgery, I think it's a BMI over 35 with type two diabetes. Otherwise, mm -hmm. typically people who are approaching 40, 50, lifestyle interventions alone, just kind of across the board. And this isn't to say that people can't have more outcomes on their own. People will lose about six to 7% of their body weight with lifestyle changes. And it's difficult to maintain, but it can definitely happen uh, with a lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. And that's a great outcome. But sometimes that may not be helping people who are in that range to perhaps reverse their diabetes or their obstructive sleep apnea or to help them with their joint pain or immobility. Um, so, you know, if they're looking to achieve more than that, then medication and bariatrics and or bariatric surgery should be considered. Um, yeah. For people who are... But below that, or kind of in between, the lifestyle changes along with this concept of using medical weight management tools mm -hmm. can be helpful. Yeah, I think that that this is um, this is something that I I feel like I want to even talk more about in my own content because I I think there's so much shame around it, and I think that's why a lot of people hesitate. Um, but there's also kind of these barriers with insurance, and like it feels complicated and overwhelming. Um, but it is, it is another, another tool. And so is there for somebody that is on the higher, you know, spectrum of BMI is weight loss more challenging, or is it just that the amount of weight loss we can achieve 
isn't enough to, to make the kind of impact that we want. It is typically more challenging because yeah. oftentimes, you know, there are genetic things that are coming into play, right? We don't talk about that enough because I think we don't have a lot of data around specific genes. Uh, there, there are some genetic syndromes that run in families and that can uh, lead to obesity um, or the propensity towards it. Um, lifestyle, environmental, nutritional, behavioral, mental health conditions. There's so many different aspects to this. Right. Um, medical conditions themselves can make weight loss harder. Like if they're in that category, they might have things like obstructive sleep apnea that itself can lead to more obesity. Mm -hmm. And so this, these, this, the, the set point, if their body is trying to like kind of get them back to that, weight loss can be harder um, to achieve uh, without interventions. Yeah. So yeah, there are certain people that are gonna be in that, in that, in that situation where it would be harder. Awesome, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I think like people need to hear that. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been working with people on weight loss for a long time. I mean, almost 10 years now, five, I don't know. And sometimes when we get to that point where it's like, you've done, you've done this much, this is amazing. You should applaud yourself. It's, it's like almost, it, there's a hard time celebrating almost because it feels like it's not enough or I should be able to do more. And I think that's one of the most challenging things is just acknowledging that um, it's not all one, 1 million percent within our control. And this is a chronic disease and it should be treated with compassion and self-compassion. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there it's important to note that um, I've had, I've been on another podcast to talk about this is, you know, everyone comes in going, oh, but I'm supposed to be this BMI. What is my perfect, what is my ideal BMI? And I'm like, right. oh gosh, you know, actually there isn't one. Um, let's look at what your health looks like. And that means what do your labs look like? What is your cholesterol looking like? What's your blood pressure? Um, are you at risk for prediabetes, diabetes? Are you practicing a healthful lifestyle? Yeah. <laughs> we know that has a huge impact. Um, there are people who can have obesity who are metabolically healthy. Mm -hmm. And one of the determinants is, are they exercising? Are they practicing a healthy lifestyle? Um, we can't assume health just based on appearance and BMI, uh, but how does it personally affect your health and your goals? And then making realistic goals, like you were saying about, hey, you know, with what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to likely achieve. But that doesn't mean that that's not good enough or that that's less than because that actually could have huge impacts on me and how I feel and my health. And if you're not getting to that point that you need, then that's where you seek additional help with an obesity medicine board certified physician mm -hmm. who can guide you on what those safe and effective options are yeah. uh, to further, you know, kind of achieve what you're looking to achieve for yourself. Such great information. Um, and I have another question for you before I want to ask you about culinary medicine. I'm like loving this conversation and I'm sure <laughs> other people are too. Um, what about physical activity? This is like another huge topic that I think there's a lot of confusion around and then it discourages people. And it's another like analysis paralysis situation. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that for somebody who's kind of getting started and on a weight loss journey? So I always like to tell people, please dissociate your exercise from weight loss. So just yes. take them separate things. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes I have people come in saying, well, you know, I've been going to the gym and I'm just not seeing any change. So I just stopped. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, like that really isn't what movement is supposed to be all about. Like we're supposed to move for other reasons. I can understand that that can be frustrating. So maybe we just dissociate the two. Mm -hmm. Reasoning, because you get lots of benefits outside of that anyways that we should be doing. Number two, um, a lot of our weight loss side of things is gonna be about the caloric intake and what are you putting into your body? And are you sleeping? Are you working on stress management? Like there's a lot of other things coming into play there. 
exercise is not an amazing tool purely just for weight loss. Yeah. Because you have to, I think the American College of Sports Medicine has a guidance on this. You have to exercise for like 450 minutes a week, okay, <laughs> to create meaningful weight loss. Right. I don't know how many people are doing that. I don't even know how many people I want to be telling them to do that. Mm-hmm. So you're best served to make dietary changes, optimize your sleep, working on your stress coping, because those are often the drivers of weight gain. And look at your exercise as I like to look at it as money in the bank. It's like an investment in my health, because I know that it's going to reduce my stress. It's going to make me sleep better. It's going to make me stronger. I know that I live longer if I exercise. It helps Mm -hmm. my risk of type 2 diabetes helps reduce my risk of having a heart attack. And it is important during weight loss maintenance. We know that's important. So if you're not building the habit for all those other reasons, it it can be a tool for uh, when you're in in, uh, maintenance to help you keep the weight off, but also an emphasis on building muscle. Because when you are eating in a calorie deficit, you're at risk for muscle loss. And we know that that's important in terms of maintaining your metabolic uh, rate, in terms of optimizing your insulin sensitivity, helps you to become more insensitive to insulin, the more muscle you have, which helps you improve your blood sugar. Um, it, it helps with your bone health in terms of when you're losing weight, we want to try to maintain that muscle mass for that reason. And uh, it can help your body composition and how you look and feel. So there's a lot of benefits to exercise, but just don't look at it as your weight loss tool specifically for that. Yeah. I, uh, it's so good to hear to hear you say that. That's exactly how I frame it. And it's like another kind of like, shock to the system. Like when people hear that, it's like, what? Like, we're so obsessed with exercise (laughs) in in the U S we're just like obsessed with it. And I I remember when I was in college and I went abroad to, to study in Italy and like, there were two tiny little gyms in this town. And most of the people walking to the gym were just like, they were like wearing heels and makeup. Like it, it wasn't even because they didn't need it. I mean, they were so, walking to the gym. Yeah, they were walking to the gym. <laughs> um, so it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't know about you, but I personally, like, I don't enjoy the traditional gym. I, I don't I hate the gym. Yeah, like, I don't go. <laughs> I don't, I hate it. I don't go there. Um, I enjoy walking outside. I enjoy my home workouts. I enjoy my, my yoga studio, but you will not find me in a traditional gym. It's not a, it's not a fun environment for me. Yeah. And, and, and that's important to talk about. I was just talking about this with a patient of mine yesterday. I was like, do something you enjoy. Like right. don't torture yourself. If you're, if your workouts or your exercise are torture, you're not going to do them. And why would yeah. you want to, but find stuff that you enjoy. I mean, number one is sit less, you know, mm-hmm. we have studies around you die less when you sit less. Okay. Yeah. Well, can I, I could have done the standing. This is a standing desk, but I decided to sit down today. <laughs> but can you stand more? Can you walk? There's yeah. tons of benefits to being outside in nature. It helps you feel better. Yeah. Um, you know, build some structure around it if you're having trouble with accountability. But yoga, Pilates, dancing, working out with a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but looking at the gains you receive even from a little bit. Because I think that's that whole all or nothing thing that most of our patients and clients probably deal with is that I have to be perfect. Yeah. And if I don't get the perfect gym workout, that's that, you know, 45 minutes of cardio and this much weightlifting, um, you're holding yourself back from what you could be doing. So I like to just say, hey, 10 minutes counts. We know there's data around, let's right. say, if you walk for 10 minutes after a meal, it helps you reduce your blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And what if you're walking 10 minutes twice a day, that's 20 minutes daily. What is that adding up to if you can do that a few days a week? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I think we, um, we sabotage with perfection mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a cultural thing too. I mean, it's just all about the hustle and achievement and, you know, exercise to me, I mean, exercise should be 
relaxing almost. Um, that's how I feel. Something you're doing for yourself, not because yeah. you have to. It's again that love language of self care. What yeah. can I do for myself? Same thing with sleep, right? So many people. I'm guilty of this too. I've done it before. Revenge, sleep, procrastination. I'm yeah. gonna stay up because this is my me time. I deserve this. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna watch Netflix and I'm gonna have this popcorn. Whatever you're doing, um, and to say like oh, actually, could my self-care be maybe I get an extra hour of sleep because my body really needs some rest. Same thing with movement. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective. Um, do you have time for me to ask you about culinary medicine? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you weren't running into another uh, or a patient. So I've heard multiple physicians now exploring this culinary medicine certification that you were talking about. You said it's through Harvard. Yes, and there are two. I'm doing that one. You're doing that. One. So what, what does this look like? Um, because I have like ideas in my head of what I think it is, but, but what is it? So it's not really all about, you know, kind of the nuance that you would go into as say a registered dietitian, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but partnering up with people in that space for sure within culinary medicine, but saying, Hey, let's take food and link it to your medical conditions. So oftentimes when, you know, there's a discussion in the exam room, say about type two diabetes, people might walk away with some handout. I hope they walk out with a referral to somebody like a dietitian to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Most people unfortunately don't, um, but type two diabetes, but we're missing a huge window of even other people, right? Who we know that what you eat can have a huge impact on these health conditions. Mm -hmm. but there's not been that emphasis in the medical community on the power of that. So culinary medicine is saying, hey, okay, making the connection between diseases like, okay, I wanna reduce my risk of colon cancer, or I have type two diabetes, or I'm at risk, or I have um, you know, high cholesterol okay, well, having a discussion around, you need to be probably incorporating more fiber into your lifestyle, say. Okay. Well, here's a way to do that. And so I try to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. about, yes, you can give them a handout on here's some high fiber foods. And then maybe taking it a step further to, to assess what is their comfort level in that department? Have they ever prepared lentils? I have tons of patients who are like, I'm really intimidated by lentils or, right. or um, whole grains, or maybe there's been like some stigma around certain foods, or maybe they thought, well, I can't be eating carbs. Um, or uh, they feel like um, all healthy food is not tasty. Mm -hmm. And so saying, hey, here's some incremental ways. So the coaching comes in on honoring the personal journey and the personal feelings around it. And the patient is the guide on kind of how they're going to do it. Well, I guess they're, they're, they're guiding the ship and I'm there to help guide them on how to do it. So if we're saying, hey, we want to eat more fiber, these are your health conditions. These are the benefits you could get out of doing this. How can we incorporate this into your lifestyle? And, um, you know, putting them in touch with resources, whether I'm doing that, or maybe re resources within the community, uh, a health coach, a dietitian, a chef, whatever that looks like, mm -hmm. to maybe doing culinary medicine sessions. That's something that I'm going to develop within my practice in the next year, to have sessions where my patients or even community, community members can come together and learn how to prepare something that we know is going to help impact their hypertension, their cholesterol, their diabetes, um, oh, and gosh. being able to kind of hands-on, we know that in a teaching kitchen session, when people get to touch the food, prepare the food, enjoy the food, there's a community around that, they're more likely to probably incorporate that food and enjoy it. I, oh my God, I'm obsessed with this. I love that. And it's, um, I think there's something special about like having that connection with food through food with our healthcare providers. Cause, cause it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a connecting thing. It's like an energetic thing. Um, that's really beautiful. It kind of reminds me for the, this might be surprising, but I had never done like virtual 
kind of communal cooking before in a program. And recently I did that. I brought people into my kitchen and like we cooked together. And I was like, this is, in, this is incredible. And it was really fun seeing people from all over the world with their creations and like talking about the food and what we liked and what we would tweak. And yeah, it's like make, making it really real. Um, Absolutely. I did one virtual this past year. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for virtual stuff. And then yeah. something a little bit uh, special about in-person only because you get to like share yeah. your creations together. Yeah. Um, I went to an amazing conference this uh, past February, Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. It's a Culinary Institute of America and the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Harvard. It's a joint uh, conference. It's amazing. You get to uh, interface with other physicians, healthcare, other healthcare providers, dietitians, health coaches, chefs. And it's like, that the food piece has been missing in the conversation and we need to yeah. talk about it and help people eat real food again. And I get that convenience is important because we're all busy, but there's a price we pay. And how about we can make healthier options also be convenient? Because really it's not that someone's only always looking to indulge. Yes, chips can be, you know, different things like that can be yeah, hard, yeah. To but it's about, education and making it accessible and convenient so that the healthier choice can also be convenient and enjoyable. Yeah, that's such a great, I love that. This is a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for, I mean, this is our first time ever talking and it's, it's just amazing to, to have so much in common. And also I love just your view on all of this. And it's true. Like, of course we're busy, but if we're not making the time to feed ourselves, you know, we have something very, very backwards. Um, cause, cause all good things stem from us taking care of ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Mittal for, for being here with us and for sharing all of your knowledge. Um, can you remind everybody, I know you're on Instagram. Is that the best place to connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook um, and Instagram at Richa Mithil, MD. Okay. And um, of course, my practice is within Dallas. I see patients all over Texas, and that's radianthealthdallas.com. Awesome. And I have my own website where I have a blog as well as culinary medicine type of resources coming soon. And that's richamithilmd.com. So good. Thank you. I'll put that in the show notes also so you guys can just click. Um, and have a beautiful rest of your day. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our discussion and take care. Awesome.